the first impulse about seaweed is that it's a nuisance, gross, smelly, associated with like unpleasant low tide smell. Mm. And when you look out here, it can just sort of look like this maroon colored blur. And so I just love helping people to zoom in on that blur and bring it into better focus to see like there's amazing diversity here. 800 different types growing along our coast here. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever actually stopped to look at the seaweed that washed up on shore. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking seaweed with Allison Poklemba, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we descend into the intertidal zone to taste seaweed fresh from the ocean and to discuss the difference between plants and algae, seaweed recipes, anti-cancer compounds, how to soothe your sunburn while in a tide pool, the Irish potato famine, and why seaweed matters so much to the many organisms living around it, including us. And if you have a friend who's ever made you read a poem they wrote about a tree, or who hikes incredibly slowly because they have to stop and look at every plant, please send them your favorite episode of this podcast and tell them why you think they'll like it. And thank you to all the people already doing this. Golden State Naturalist is now ranked in the top 1% of podcasts globally, which does not feel real and is absolutely only possible because of each person who has shared an episode with a friend. Thank you also to the wonderful people supporting the show on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. You make the show possible, and because of your support, more and more people all the time are learning about the natural world all around them. If you too would like to support the show while getting access to bonus audio from interviews, a patrons-only book club, and more, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's, and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can find me on both Instagram and TikTok at Golden State Naturalist. But now, let's get to the episode. Allison Poklemba is a teacher, botanist, herbalist, environmental educator, artist, mother, friend, and always curious student of nature. In 2012, she co-founded Backcountry Press, where she and her husband, Michael Kaufman, are on a mission to enhance the human connection with the natural world through easy-to-understand science and direct experience in nature. Together, they publish a beautiful collection of books and craft both online and in-person experiences in service of this mission. Allison is also the co-director of the Dandelion Herbal Center, which offers classes and adventures that share plant wisdom for health and happiness. She's been teaching with the Dandelion Herbal Center since 2002, where she offers annual sea vegetable adventures to tide pools on the north coast of California. Allison earned a BS in botany and a science teaching credential from Cal Poly Humboldt. She worked in the field of environmental education for almost 20 years, where she taught teachers how to incorporate environmental literacy into their teaching practices, both in and outside the classroom. So without further ado, let's hear from Allison Poklemba on Golden State Naturalist. I met up with Allison on the Northern California coast, just south of Trinidad in Humboldt County, all the way back in early April. We parked our cars under an overcast sky, and as the tide was going out, pulled on cozy jackets and waterproof shoes. Allison graciously loaned me a pair of hers so I wouldn't soak my feet through the old pair of sneakers I'd brought for the occasion, and clipped mics to our collars. We hiked down a narrow path, cut across a sandy beach, and headed to the water, where the sand vanished and gave way to rocks covered in marine life, visible now that the tide was almost all the way out. 
As we picked our way across the rocks, pools of all shapes and sizes appeared around our feet, the occasional waves sloshing into them, hermit crabs shuffling back and forth seriously under the surface, while neon anemones graced the edges and sea stars clung to the lowest parts of boulders. And surrounding and underpinning all of this life was seaweed, a purple shag carpet coating the rocks with a burst of bumpy olive green here and a ribbon of maroon there. Come with Allison and I to this space between the tides. We'll meet you there after a quick break. If you're a fan of this podcast, there's a good chance you've experienced the joy of planting a teeny tiny little seed and helping it grow into something beautiful. Last year, I started a native plant garden from seed with my family and got to see California poppies, yarrow, lupins, and more native wildflowers grow and bloom right in my front yard. But finding the right native plant seeds for your project can be tricky in our state with its super diverse set of soil types and microclimates, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the new California Collection, a project of Nature's Seed. The California Collection is an online store that carries over 140 different plant species originally collected from the wild and produced by local California growers like Hedgerow Farms, which you might remember from the Golden State Naturalist episode on growing native plants from seed. You can purchase anything from a packet to several pounds and have it shipped right to you. I'm really excited about adding some native milkweed from monarch butterflies and California buckwheat to feed a ton of different pollinators in my yard. Listeners of this podcast can use the code GSN10 to take $10 off your order. Visit natureseed.com backslash California seeds to check it out today. That's natureseed.com backslash California seeds or check the link in the show notes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode of Golden State Naturalist is all about seaweed with Allison Poklemba. Here we are in a Northern California tide pool back in April, right in the middle of the intertidal zone. But what exactly does that mean? It is just this narrow band where the sea meets the land. And it doesn't take up very much of our planet, Mm -hmm. but yet there is such diversity to be found in this stretch of rocks. Allison and I were probably 20 to 30 feet away from the sandy beach and out into the rocky intertidal zone. What we're looking at here is a whole gradient of both moisture and sunlight and temperature. It's like very complex, this intertidal area. And intertidal just means the area that is covered up by the highest tide and then exposed at the lowest tide. So that's our intertidal zone. And you can picture it pretty easily that at the depths of that are going to be both plant, animal, and algal species that are best adapted to living in more moist environs as opposed to drier environs if you get further up towards the beach there. And then the same thing happens if you look, like right before us, there is a large boulder. Right. And you can even just look at this one boulder and see this gradient in action. Like, what do you see growing at the top of the boulder? A bunch of mussels. Are those mussels? Those are mussels. Yep. Bunch of mussels. And then there's a little bit of seaweed on the top. Mm -hmm. But then it sort of changes as it goes down. And, And as you go all the way down to the bottom, now there's a bunch of sea stars, a bunch of sea urchins. 
Right, It's exactly. real different. And mm -hmm. did you see how the colors of the seaweed that's growing change as you go down the rock as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have this gradient. The things that are growing at the top, they really want to capture the most sunlight. They have different pigments in them to do that versus the things at the bottom are a different mm -hmm. color. So we have more olive -y green things growing at the top and more maroon, darker things growing at the bottom. Also, like the structures of them are different. Like you look at these ones that are growing at the top and we can get up close to those, but they have little little bulbs in them that help mm. them float up towards the surface a little bit more. They can stand being dried out more than the ones at the bottom. So when I bring someone to the intertidal for the first time, I provide them with a map. Like I give you a sample of my yeah. intertidal map. Allison gave me the simultaneously cutest and most helpful hand-drawn map of where you can expect to find about a dozen different species of seaweed in the intertidal zone. I'll post a picture of this map on Instagram, which will give you an idea of what it looks like. But if you want your own copy of it to learn from or to take with you out to the ocean, you can head over to backcountrypress.com seaweed and download it for free because Allison rocks like that. That shows you where things predictably grow. Is it higher up on the rocks, lower down on the rocks? To our right, we have some pretty strong wave action. There are certain things that like that and require it to reproduce and to thrive. And if we look towards the shore a little bit more, look at how still the water is in that pool. All right. It's like a reflective glass top, like you're at a pond. And so things growing there are going to thrive in a different way. And they might get some of that wave action, but not as consistently as this area down here. That's right. There's so much incredible complexity in an intertidal zone. And I want you to know that there's going to be an entire episode on tide pools, mostly focusing on all the critters like sea stars and urchins and chitons that live in tide pools later this season. Okay, back to seaweed. What is kind of a favorite species that you're seeing right now? Okay, see this one right behind you? Yeah. This is called sea cabbage, pedophilum sessile, <laughs> and... I love the texture of it. So one thing that I tell people when they are learning to identify seaweed is that it's all about texture because the same species might be growing somewhere where it gets strong wave action and so it might grow smaller or in a certain shape and then it might grow somewhere where it's more protected and be a different shape or a different Ooh. size. So when you're looking at like land plants, you kind of expect to see the same leaf shape in size on an alder tree, wherever right. you find an alder tree. Right. But not really that way for seaweed. But the texture is always the same for seaweed. Mm -hmm. So you see how this is sort of leathery, kind of like, yeah. like a fruit leather, I oh, would yeah. say. Sort of stretchy. And then you see this Thick. texture towards the base of it. It grows like in a rosette. Wow. With, it almost looks like a belly button in the middle. This one's all curled up, but you can see that really well. Yeah, and it's it's really wavy and bumpy and it gets, it almost feels more slimy. It's not, like if you take your fingers away and rub them together, it's not slimy, but it almost feels like it's mm -hmm. smooth. Maybe smooth is a better word. Yes. Smoother and slipperier. Yes. And then this texture, I like to think of it as sort of like seersucker fabric. Hmm. Can you see that? I like how it has those wrinkles in there oh, like that. Yeah. So take a little nibble and see what Ooh, you think. Okay. And that's okay. You can just come out and taste some. You can taste some, absolutely. Ooh. See what we think about the flavor. Okay, that's way more like crunchy than I expected. Mm -hmm. Do you see the sliminess coming out now in your mouth? Yeah. I mean, it took a second. Yeah, it did. So sea cabbage is sort of like 
I think of this as sort of a shy seaweed because mm. it's not... We're coming to the tide pools at an interesting time of year. Mm -hmm. Some of these are, we could think of them as perennials and some as annuals. And right now, it's so early in the spring that the flush of annuals isn't really out yet. Right. So the rocks are looking a little bit barren. This is a perennial. It's been here all winter. It has clearly been weathering some solid storms because it's right. pretty torn up. But this would grow to be a much more leafy looking thing. Mm -hmm. And this is the one where if I'm taking a group out for a little tide pool tour and they have a list of things that they're looking for, people are always like, where is that sea cabbage? I didn't see that yet. Oh, yeah. And I'll say, look down at your feet. There it is. It sort of hides out oh. on like the downward side of a rock where okay. it's just not that obvious. But we see it more clearly now because there's not a lot growing around it. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of kind of when you're walking around out here, we walked on a lot of rocks that have seaweed growing on them like should we be careful where we step? What's kind of the etiquette of coming out here and visiting the intertidal zone? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's always best to step on bare rock if you can, mm -hmm. is one thing. Because there are so many living things, whether it's the mussels, the barnacles, the chitons, the anemones, which oftentimes will grow in clusters and their outsides are sort of sticky and they're covered with small pebbles to protect them and right. so they look like a rock they do but if you were to put your hand on it you'd see it's a little bit mushy yeah so those are very easily disturbed by stepping on them so bare rock is best also it can be hard clambering around in the tide pools because it's so slippery right and so oftentimes people will want to bring like a hiking pole or something and that's actually like I think the biggest hazard out in the tide pools because wherever you put your pole, it really concentrates at the tip of that pole, all the pressure, and it will just destroy whatever living thing. Don't impale your marine friends. Leave the hiking poles at home. Friends don't stab friends. Also, you just want to think about not prying off living things. Right. It's okay to pick things up if they're free from being attached, but then after you show them to your friends, make sure you put them back in the same spot. Mm -hmm. That would be some good tide pool etiquette. And one thing I do want to mention also in encouraging people to come out to the tide pools and explore is just safety. And that, you know, like we tell our children, never mm -hmm. turn your back on the ocean. Right. Like that's true for you too. The, the waves can be pretty unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And so go with a buddy and take turns being the lookout. Footwear, let's talk about footwear yes. for a sec. You know, there's a lot of sh things out here. We just mm -hmm. talked about the mussels and the barnacles. So you don't want to come out in like your tacos or your tivas right. or barefoot right? <laughs> because you'll just like get sliced and diced. So closed toed. Closed toed. Good grip. Yeah. And you know, old sneakers are great or rain mm. boots or surf booties, something like that. Okay. It's totally fine. I don't know if you've ever explored a tide pool, but if you have, you've probably also slipped on a rock while trying to avoid stepping on an anemone. It's not easy to navigate these areas because everything is wet and slippery and covered in life you don't want to crush. So thinking about this made me wonder if there are any wheelchair accessible tide pools. And unfortunately, the only ones I could find mentioned online are in Newport, Oregon. And a lot of people in forums say that sand has washed into them and made them not great tide pools. So that is a bummer. And hopefully someone is working on a creative solution for tide pool access. But in the meantime, I did find something cool while researching this, which is that the California Coastal Commission offers beach wheelchairs at dozens of beaches up and down the California coast for free. I had never seen or heard of beach wheelchairs before, but they are so cool. 
They have these massive tires that are completely smooth all the way around and look like big sandy donuts. If you need one of these chairs for yourself or for a friend, they're available either on a first come first serve basis or by calling and reserving them in advance, depending on the location. Definitely call ahead though, because it seems like each beach has its own system. I'll put a link to the page with all of this information and phone numbers and a map of all the beaches that offer the chairs in the show notes. Or if you just Google California beach wheelchairs, it should be the top or close to the top of the results. Okay, but how do you stay safe if you've made it out into a tide pool and you're ready to gather some seaweed? And then once you get into wanting to collect little snippets of seaweed, you want to think about also not injuring yourself with whatever knife or scissors you're using. So you'll see I have a folding knife is important or some sort of sheath to keep your knife in. You don't want to be on slippery rocks with a big non-folding no, exposed No, and I only mention all these things because I've seen them all go wrong, you know, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> over yeah. the years. Exactly. So we should first, you know, this is a California-centric podcast, yeah. and so we should say, like, well, what are the rules regarding yeah, yeah, I'm harvesting seaweed in California? <laughs> the rules are different in each state. So if you're listening in, say, Oregon or Washington, the rules are a bit more strict in those states. Mm. In California, the season is open all year. Wow. And the you do not need to get any sort of license or permit for most species. The limit of how much you can collect is 10 pounds wet weight per day. And that's not using any sort of float-assisted harvesting system. Like, you can't paddle out on your surfboard to the awesome bull kelp okay. field and collect like that. Okay. But if you're just walking out, that's what you can do. Okay. Allison also wanted to let you know that you can't gather in a national park or most state parks. This includes seaweed that washes up on shore. And you need proper permissions to gather on tribal lands. According to NOAA, which is not my friend's name, but is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, marine protected area is a broad term that encompasses a variety of conservation and management methods in the United States. So under that umbrella, you have things like the tribal lands and parks that I mentioned before, but you also have things like wildlife refuges and sanctuaries and areas with local protections. This might all sound extremely overwhelming to navigate, but thankfully, there is a singular map showing all of these protected areas in California. It's created by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and you can zoom in on it all over the California coast to see which areas are protected. It's a one-stop shop. I'll link it in the show notes. But regardless of where you are, don't go after things that aren't actually seaweed, like surfgrass or eelgrass. And if you see some like one foot tall palm trees bobbing up and down in the surf way out on a rock, those are actually a seaweed called sea palm. And you need a special license to collect them because they're super tasty and people went after them too hard. So now they have to be protected. Instead of harvesting them, though, you can always just appreciate their cuteness. When it grows, the the small ones emerge fully shaped, only miniature size, and then all the cells just expand. It's like it inflates. And so they're they're perfect as miniature. You can picture a miniature palm tree like a half a centimeter tall. And then it just blows up. That's amazing. Just add water. It's like one of those little hatching dinosaur egg things. You can just put it in the water. Absolutely. The magic sponge you put in the bathtub. That's exactly what it's like. I need you to know that at this point, Allison was wearing pants with 100 pockets on them. And I don't know what were in the other 99, but she had something delightful in one of them. I happen to have some in my pocket, though, that was harvested legally by a commercial collector. 
she pulled out some dried sea palm. Okay. There you go. We'll crunch it. You can hear how crunchy it was. Wow. That's amazing. It has like layers. Mm-hmm. Umami. The Big time umami. Mm-hmm. In case you're not familiar with it, umami is the fifth taste. There's sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, which is savory. And for a long time, this taste wasn't recognized as its own distinct flavor by science. That is until 1907, when a Japanese chemist named Kikunai Ikeda was eating a bowl of soup containing a seaweed called kombu and realized that the flavor profile didn't fit into any of the existing categories of taste. So seaweed has lots of that deep, savory umami flavor. And we can thank seaweed for the fact that we now have a name for this flavor, which is also found in meat, mushrooms, and some other things, including certain fermented foods like miso and soy sauce. Let's rehydrate a few. Ooh, fun. So we can see what they look like. We climbed over more rocks closer to the water, while Allison explained a very cool property of seaweed. With pretty much all species, except for one called sea oak, Mm -hmm. They dry amazingly well. They're like sponges, and then you can just instantly rehydrate them, and they poof right back to life, like the the dino sponge you were talking about. So we'll just put this in the seawater here, let it rehydrate a little bit. Allison took a piece of the dried sea palm into her hand and plunged it into that icy cold Northern California Pacific Ocean. And then we'll get to see what the sea palm would have looked like fresh. So this is a seaweed that likes to grow where... It's in the splash zone. Oh, kind of like I got splashed right there. (laughs) So it'll be like out on the furthest rocks. And that is because, like I'm I'm looking over in that direction, you Mm -hmm. see how the, when the waves crash, it makes a spray of water. Yeah. Like right then. Mm -hmm. They would want to be in that spray of water because the water droplets going down these little fronds carry its spores out into the water. Oh, they rely on that. They rely on that. Allison had had her hand in the cold water for a while now, and it was honestly stressing me out. I don't know about you, but I can't put my hand into cold water for more than about three seconds, and I could feel the pain of the cold water even though it wasn't my hand submerged in it. Listen to me trying to be casual as I ask her about it. How long do they have to stay in the water? Well, if we had warm water, it would be pretty instant, Mm. but the temperature of this ocean water is pretty chilly. It's pretty (laughs) So it takes a little bit, but she finally took her hand out of the water and I felt so much better. We'll see. We're right, coming back see. to life slowly but surely. Yeah. So now you're starting to see those ridges on them, right? Yeah. It was and, too kind of like shriveled and desiccated before. Yeah. To see that. And you're getting like more of the true color. They're <laughs> just more olive green. Mm-hmm. And in those ridges are where the spore-producing cells are located. And so when the spray droplets land, they run down those little ridges and carry the spores back into the ocean to reproduce. And oftentimes these grow out of really dense muscle clusters on the high rocks. Mm -hmm. And so the spores will get carried into those muscle clusters and just grow right out of the muscles. And so they keep growing and growing. But this part that we're eating is the reproductive structure of the oh, algae. So if you take a lot of it, right, it's, it's not making its babies, yeah. And this is one that is actually an annual. Mm-hmm. So if we're collecting the reproductive structures from the annual splash zone, then we're really impacting its ability to thrive. 
You want to try it yeah. in the rehydrated state here? Yeah. Right. Notice the complete lack of crunching sounds this time mm. around. Oh, yeah. A little chewier. Mm, way chewier. <laughs> the flavor is more immediate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a special one. Being in the tide pools in April may not have been the best for seeing fully developed seaweeds everywhere we looked, but it did have its advantages when it came to seeing their whole life cycle. See, these are the annuals just starting to come Ooh. back. It just looks like almost, I would think it was just slime on the right. rock if I didn't look closely. I know, I know, I know. So the green that you're seeing here is ulva, which is a clearly a green seaweed. Yeah. And this we call seed lettuce. This will grow big and leafy. And then these little ones that you're seeing here are the little tiny pyropia or nori just starting to come back. Ah. So the pyropia it engages in what we call alternation of generations. So it splits its time. During the spring and summer, it grows as a leafy thing Mm -hmm. growing on the rocks. The Kashaya Pomo of Sonoma County, their traditional name for it is Maybill, which means sea leaf. And it really is leaf-like. So that whole leafy part will dissolve into spores Mm. that then will find home over winter as a little feathery thread-like thing inside of like a oyster shell. Wow. And then that produces, I'm forgetting which one is the gamete producing and which is the spore producing, mm-hmm. but it's alternating between these two life forms. Wow. Those gametes or spores, whichever it is, will be released from that shell mm-hmm. and then they'll find a home on the rock to grow into the, the leafy bits. And it's just such a brilliant way to like overwinter. This is doing it as well. This is Mastocarpus jardinii. Mm-hmm. At this point, Allison pointed at what looked like just bare rock to me. So I was stunned by the fact that the rubbery substance on the rock was actually seaweed. But even crazier than that is that right next to it, a small red feathery looking algae that could not look more different from those subtle rubbery marks on the rocks were the exact same species. It looks like a black rubbery tar spot on the rock. Wow. And this was a... I didn't even think you were... I didn't even see that at first. I thought you were talking about this little leafy guy here. And when you look at this rock, you see these spots all over. Yeah. This is an algae. Whoa. I would have assumed that's just the coloration of the rock. That's so cool. I know. This was one of the more recent discoveries, you know, probably like in the last 50 years or so that people realized that these were actually the same species. Okay, but if the annuals weren't really out yet and some seaweeds were still in their overwintering phase... What would be the best time of year to come out and forage for seaweed? It depends on what species you're after. And going back to the Kashaya Pomo, the indigenous people all along the Pacific coast have really relied on seaweed as an important food staple. Certain species, like, for example, this nori, which is like the Japanese term for it, maybill. If you're using more European language, it's called laver. Mm. This is 30 to 40% protein, 40 to 50% uh, minerals. Mm -hmm. So it's super food, super food. And so in some cultures, it's been seen as a famine food and in other places more of just a staple. Right. In some places, a delicacy, depending on how it's prepared. So back to indigenous people of Sonoma County, there was a saying that when the the grass is green, it's seaweed time. And we know like... Kate Wolf would sing about in California, the hills are brown in the summertime. 
So it's before the, the hills turn brown is okay. when you're coming to get it. So really we're thinking like late spring is ideal. We know this has been an incredible winter. 15 atmospheric rivers have so far hit at least the north coast of California right. this winter. Like things are really delayed. Yeah. So look at how tiny these are. We're looking at things that are like mm -hmm. as big as my fingernail. Yeah, it looks like somebody just came and drew on it with a marker. <laughs> it doesn't even look like it's yeah. growing yet really. Yeah. So if we came and we're looking to harvest this later into the summer, mm -hmm. what happens is that eventually it's really going to break down because the entire what we call phallus. That is T-H-A-L-L-U-S. Just so we're all on the same page here. You wonder like, well, what do you call a seaweed? Is it a plant? Is it its body? The whole thing is called a phallus. Okay. And so its thallus will start to disintegrate into spores as it's returning to the ocean for its next phase of its life cycle. And also lots of little things will want to live in it. You see all these little periwinkle snails and things that are on the rocks? Mm -hmm. That was great habitat for those. Yeah. And they're really hard to eat. <laughs> so if you're harvesting it for eating, yeah. munching on snails is like not ideal. And they're really hard to pick off. Right. No, so. Not difficult, but just time consuming. Okay. So late spring, early summer is the best okay. for these sort of leafy varieties. In theory, you could harvest the larger kelps that grow deeper out in the water all year. The issue is just that in the winter months, the ocean is much more rough and it's difficult mm. to access okay. because that's growing in the deeper water out right. there, deeper in the intertidal zone. It's a little more dangerous. Yes. So there is something that will feed you all year. And that is why in certain places, seaweed is looked at as a famine food. Right. Like if we think about back into the mid to late 1800s in Ireland when the potato famine was going on, people were really hard up for some mm -hmm. nourishment. And so coastal people looked to the ocean, looked to see what was on the rocks, and seaweed became a sustenance that was keeping people alive. And to this day, there is a phrase that is said that if you die in poverty, that you've died with a piece of seaweed in your mouth. Mm. And that's sort of what it represents versus looked at more of a as more of a delicacy in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. But something will always feed you. And what's growing right on top here. Allison pointed out a cute little seaweed, the whole thing just a few inches in diameter, that had an olive green color and flat, what I would call leaves, but that are actually called blades, with the tiniest puffs at their lobby ends. This is fucus, or fucus. bladderwrack. Ooh, which okay, is I've heard of this. Something that grows at a similar latitude all around the planet where there are rocky coastal areas. And fucus rhymes with the word, do you know what oh, I'm thinking yep, of? Yep, yep. And some people don't like it. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind, it's okay. And so when I just separated the little blades right here, you could see some line, like right here, you can see some lines of mucus. Wow. Stretching between fucus, them. Mucus, mucus, easy to remember. Okay, amazing. And it reminds me a little bit of like a valley oak leaf, like at the end. I will make anything be about oak trees. Sort of that lobed, mm -hmm. that lobed look, except these have like just pairs of two. Yes, it really little. does like branch dichotomously. Yeah. So they're always gonna, it's always gonna split in two, forked. And you can see how this one right here that did seem more slimy. Yeah. How it's puffed up a little Ooh, bit. Yeah. And as the season goes on, this will turn into more of a puffed up textured pillow little thing. Uh -huh. And this is the reproductive part of this perennial okay. seaweed. And I call this one affectionately the aloe of the sea. The aloe of the sea. Because these little pockets right here, if I break one open, uh -huh. it's almost like splitting open an aloe filet. 
Oh, Where yeah. on the inside, it has a lot of mucilage, which is very soothing, cooling, demulcent, which yeah. just means like softening and moistening to the skin. Okay. A lot of mucilage. A 2002 study from the Journal of Cosmetic Sciences concludes that fucus vesiculosis extract possesses anti-aging activities that should be useful for a variety of cosmetics, which is very exciting. But please recall that I am not a dermatologist or physician of any kind, and nothing you hear on this podcast is medical or even cosmetic advice, because I literally learned about this 30 seconds ago on PubMed. And the properties of this are anti-inflammatory and cooling. So you can picture that if you were at the beach, it was like the first real sunny day of summer, you're wearing your tank top and you, oops, totally sunburn your shoulders. You have this aloe of the sea that you can grab some little tips of and rub that soothing gel on your sunburn to help, help make it feel better and heal that right up. So if you were looking at edibility of seaweed, you know, one thing we didn't mention is like, well, which seaweeds can you eat and which yeah, can't you? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Are there some yep. that are like toxic? There is one, picture this, an escaped ornamental. <gasps> no. Yes. Like how would you have an ornamental seaweed? What? For your fish tank? Exactly. And then somebody dumped their fish tank in the ocean? Yes. Stop it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm that. looking at you, Southern California. <laughs> okay. So I just Googled it, and depressingly, aquarium dumping is a whole thing happening all over the place, and not at all an isolated incident as I had naively hoped. Sue Williams, an evolution and ecology professor from UC Davis, stated in a HuffPost article that globally, the aquarium trade has contributed a third of the world's worst aquatic invasive species. That same article goes on to say that in California, 13 species found only in fish tanks have escaped into the state's marine waters, presumably due to release by aquarium owners or importers. But what should you do if you get a fish tank and then realize that you can't take care of it anymore? Or maybe just have one super aggressive fish, like the angelfish I had as a kid that ate all of my other fish. A page on PetHelpful.com has a bunch of suggestions, including joining a fish club where someone might be happy to take any misfit fish off your hands, finding a pet store that may want and even pay you for the fish, posting it for sale or for free online, donating it to an office, nursing home, or school where it might add some beauty and color. So find a good home for your fish and never, ever dump them in a pond, river, or ocean because these are hardy species that can cause absolute havoc on native ecosystems. Okay, but what about that escaped algae in California that Allison mentioned? And it's been making its way up the California coast. It's not in Humboldt County, but it has made it as far as Mendocino County. Oh, that's pretty far. That's pretty far. Yes, which is just the county south Uh. of Humboldt, where we are. That seaweed actually has some toxic compounds in it. Okay. It doesn't look like you would want to eat it. I mean, it looks more like moss or something okay, like that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look yeah. like you would just be like, oh, well, let me try a bite of that. <laughs> it doesn't look food-like. Okay. There is one other one that could look food-like called Desmarestia or acid kelp. Ooh. It's sort of, it could be quite large. It is very flat and branched like a fern. Okay. That one, it is not toxic, but it has pretty high levels of sulfuric acid in it. Oh, so it could cause GI upset, okay, we could say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you collect it in your collection bag at all, it will actually start to digest the other things that you've collected. So you'll get home to process your seaweed and find you have a bag of mush. Wow, it's that quick? Yes, it's that quick. But everything else? But everything safe? else. 
Good. So what we say is edible, not necessarily palatable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there are about a dozen like choice edible species. Okay. So the best course of action is to learn a handful of species that are definitely edible, make sure you can truly identify them, and then only harvest those ones you're super certain about. For more about safe and ethical foraging, check out the foraging episode with Mia Andler that came out between seasons two and three of the show. And remember that this podcast is not an identification guide, and it's your job to verify what's safe to eat and where is a safe and legal place to harvest it from. And let's see what we've seen so far. We've seen the sea cabbage. Mm -hmm. We've seen the fucus. Now, fucus, I would say, is a choice edible for someone that really loves okra. It's like, Ooh, it's slimy, 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 slimy. Okay. But it's really nice in, say, like, making your soup broth. Okay. It imparts flavor. Mm -hmm. It imparts a thickness sort of a feeling. Mm -hmm. And also, this is a great medicinal. So mm. that kind of aloe of the sea vibe that soothing gel right. is awesome to drink as if you're you could simmer this like making a tea mm -hmm. for say like a sore throat or for healing any sort of gut inflammation and you know if you were sadly suffering in the potato famine you could fill your belly with that. right 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 <laughs> one thing we haven't talked about is that seaweed are just algae that uh -huh. live in marine environments seaweeds aren't plants because they don't have a vascular system, stems, roots, or leaves as plants generally do. Although there are non-vascular plants like mosses that we shouldn't forget about. And while most plants can only photosynthesize in their leaves, seaweeds can photosynthesize in all of their tissues, which is kind of like if we could eat In-N-Out burgers through our skin. This is also how seaweeds roll when it comes to gathering all of the nutrients they need. They don't need a vascular system to pass things like minerals around because they're in water and they can just absorb what they need right from the ocean. And... They can be grouped into three big, this like takes you back to like seventh grade science class. You have your greens, your reds, and your browns. Okay. And this is a beautiful example of a red group seaweed. This is our Pacific version of dulse, palmaria. This palmaria is also known as bacon of the sea. And we tasted it, and I think it was my favorite seaweed of the day. Subtle with a very approachable texture that is not slimy or chewy. I think of it as a good beginner seaweed when it comes to palatability. But seaweed pros also appreciate it. This is a delicious addition that you, once you were to dry this, you could easily flake it up and just sprinkle it on, you know, popcorn, salads, eggs, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Whatever you're eating. It's a great addition. Just to give it an umami flavor. And amazing nutritional value. Nice. The cool thing about the red seaweeds is that they do this thing called chelation, which means that they chelate heavy metals in your body. Mm. They attract them where heavy metals, they sort of circulate through your body and what happens is they will be filtered out through your bloodstream, wind up in your intestines, like keep Ooh. floating around, mm -hmm. but it's hard to actually get rid of them. Right. And so this interacts with whatever heavy metals are in your intestinal tract wow binds with them to create a new molecule that your body can't reabsorb and passes out through amazing you. Oh, no. you oh, no. <laughs> it's the red ones the red ones go red this seaweed. is this the dulse here is really the star amazing hey pop quiz am i a doctor nope still no please talk to yours before you experiment on yourself with seaweed but something really cool about seaweed's ability to absorb heavy metals is that according to a 2022 study published in the journal Molecules, 
algae and seaweed biomass can be used to sustainably eliminate heavy metals from wastewater. Of course, this also makes me wonder if their incredible ability to absorb what's in the water is always a good thing in a potential food source. I mean, this is growing in the ocean yeah. and it's exposed to I don't know, <laughs> whatever's in the ocean, right? Yeah. So is the seaweed absorbing those pollutants and is that something that you should be worried about when harvesting and eating it? That is a very good question. And you know, seaweed does do that. It concentrates what's in the ocean water into its thallus mm -hmm. for better or worse mm -hmm. as we are concerned. Right. So the theory is that with the heavy metals specifically and that ability to chelate those, that that happens right here in these leafy bits that we're looking at. And so if you are ingesting this and say this has accumulated some heavy metals in it, that they are in a form that will pass right through your body. Also, this is why seaweeds are so good for us. Why mm -hmm. they have incredible mineral content is because they're concentrating those elements from the ocean water. Okay. So there's that. Okay. But you do want to harvest seaweed from the least polluted places possible. That's really important. It may look very pristine in an area, but you can look up through the Coastal Commission. Their beaches are sampled and given a grade oh, of how, nice. how clean the water actually is. Mm -hmm. So there might be failing septic systems right Ooh. over that hill yeah, that are grandfathered in and draining over here or there might be runoff from agricultural areas or what have you mm -hmm. so that's good to know i would say away from stream or river mouths is important mm -hmm. to some extent then you're getting all of that concentrated runoff from the land whatever's pollutants are on the land is that why uh, yes okay yeah potentially speaking of where seaweed comes from a listener and patron of the podcast, Tori, was wondering whether seaweed at the grocery store is generally farmed or wild harvested. Is pretty much all of the seaweed that you buy at the store farmed from across the ocean? I would say no, it's not. But in our country, I would say probably 97% or so wow. is. Locally, you could find people that are foraging locally and really yeah. selling on a small scale. Yeah. How wonderful is that to yeah. be supporting their efforts as long as they're not being too extractive in certain locations. Right. There are farming operations going on, Whoa. which are have primarily been in Alaska, okay. in Maine, British Columbia. However, our university here, Cal Poly Humboldt, is kind of leading the way in California to figure out how to navigate that permit-wise. Oh, it's very challenging to get yeah. a kelp farm permitted that is actually in marine waters, not on land. Wow. But they are doing it, and they're hey. a couple years in on the process. They have proved the concept is working. Right Ooh. now, they're growing bull kelp. And a okay. couple weeks ago, I got to go out on a little boat into Humboldt Bay to check out their farm. How cool. It's super cool. I'm so proud of what they're doing over there. What an unconventional farm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's happening slowly but surely. It's a slow process. Right. So into the future, you could very likely be buying California farmed sea vegetables at your local grocery. Fantastic. But it's happening minimally so far. Right, right. It's got to be tested first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So this episode was recorded after a truly wild winter in California. There was so much rain that based on conversations Allison had after our interview with kelp farmers from Cal Poly Humboldt and Private Ventures, 
the runoff actually temporarily lowered the salinity of Humboldt Bay, which wasn't good for kelp crops and caused some crop failures. These rain patterns will likely become more extreme with climate change, but projects like this are even more important in the face of climate change because kelp is great at carbon sequestration. More on that later, but I hope they find a way to make these farms work in the long run. Also, thankfully rains didn't seem to adversely affect the seaweed in the ocean, which Allison tells me was incredibly abundant this year. Okay, at this point, the tide had started to come in, so Allison and I made our way up the beach and got settled on a log, because I still had more questions about seaweed and its ecological importance, and also how Allison got interested in it. How did you initially get interested in the natural world, and then specifically seaweed? I have always had this just like sense of wonder about plants specifically, Mm. and I remember, this is so silly, but I remember... Growing up, I grew up in New Hampshire, and I had my sister and I had this beloved cat, Fluffernutter. She was a big, fluffy calico cat. And I remember wandering around beside her as she, like, walked through the little fern forest that we had in our front yard. And it was like going through these fern tunnels and looking up through the fern fronds towards the sky. It was really magical. It left such an impression of wonder on me. Did you see, like, fairies in there? I wish I did. I didn't, <laughs> know, like, that. I didn't know about kind of... fairies. I've always Dang. wished they would just start talking they to me were just watching. Up. They were watching you. They That's must have. <laughs> I was inspiring them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I've just always been super curious. Like, I, uh-huh. I'm one of those people that just wants to, like, I have a lot of questions about, like, everything. Yeah, I love that. So <laughs> I feel like the natural world, it just lends itself to wondering. And right. I just wonder about all these different things. And I just, yeah, feel pretty happy. Like, look at where we are. I feel very happy being here. And so I think that in my adult life, I have just found excuses to spend more time in places like this. Going in that direction really helped to spend more time outside. I never really pictured myself having a career that was like really desk centered, Mm -hmm. though now I do spend a considerable amount of time behind a desk because you have to not just have this experience and these wonderings and this kind of knowledge accumulation of things that might be happening outdoors, but then you have to find a way to creatively communicate about that, to share it with other people. And oftentimes that part could happen at a desk, right? as I'm sure you find as well. How did it end up getting into the seaweed sort of avenue of things? How did that happen? Ah, yes. So Plant World was really calling my name hard. Yeah. And I found that at what was Humboldt State University, is now Cal Poly Humboldt, Oh my gosh, they have the most amazing botany program there that wasn't just looking at things at, you know, collected dried samples of plants, but it was really field-based in many ways. So that was fabulous for me to get out and really explore and see firsthand what the plant world had in store. And so one of the classes that was taught as I was studying botany at the university was phycology or the study of algae. Mm. So that piqued my interest and I was running sort of like two parallel courses in my life. And I've talked to you about this before, but I also am very much into herbalism and I'm the co-director of an herbal school called the Dandelion Herbal Center, which I really feel like is the intersection between my scientific brain and like my spiritual side. Mm. And that to me is like what wondering is, you know, it's like, yes, I have these these questions that maybe could be answered scientifically about something about what's happening here with the seaweed, Mm -hmm. for example. But there's also this like element of mystery that I really adore. So it was, wasn't just learning phycology and like the different 
characteristics that make this species this and that species that, but it was also like, how do humans intersect with this? And that was really like the herbalism part was studying that alongside the scientific botany and how another name for that could be like ethnobotany, mm-hmm. but really having firsthand, not studying necessarily someone else's experience with it as like a sociologist, but having my own firsthand experiences of getting to know plants in that way of ingesting wild plants, creating medicines, using plants for health and happiness in different ways. I did get some funny looks though, being in like the science lab (laughs) nibbling on things. People weren't really used to seeing that. (laughs) That's so interesting. And that's really too bad. So Mm -hmm. like, that's more data, right? Like use all of your senses, get more data, collect more. Yeah. And I do feel like, you know, that was in like the late nineties, early Mm two thousands when I was a college student. And I feel like in the last 25 years or so, like the world has opened up a little bit more in that regard. So I cool. don't think you'd get as many stink yeah. eyes yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for breaking the ice. Yeah, yeah. That's no good. Problem. Good no job. Problem. That's amazing. And so you're kind of talking too about the medicinal uses of these not plants, of the algae, of the seaweed. And and I'm kind of wondering where is the line between food and medicine, or would you say there is a line between food and medicine? Oh, I love that question. Well, I mean, ideally, like our food would be our medicine. Mm-hmm. That would be great. And I would say that like with seaweed. They are so nutrient dense that oftentimes it is that nutrient denseness of them that is the medicine that's needed in a particular case. I think of something as, you know, like our allopathic model is you take this for that ailment that you're experiencing and that the medicines can oftentimes be more heroic in nature where like you need a remedy for your remedy. You know, you're having other side effects because you're taking this particular thing. And that that's not really how plant medicine works. That it's, I don't know, like, could you eat too many carrots? I suppose you could eat too many carrots and feel ill. Right. Turn a little yellow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But usually there would be, like, a natural consequence. Like, could you have too much seaweed? Yes, you could. It has a lot of fiber. So, you know, that might impact you in a certain way. And that's how you would know that you would have too much seaweed. The power that food has in our bodies is exactly why doctors and nutritionists are always trying to educate us and get us to eat better. And of course, whether our medicines are plant-based or pharmaceutical, the gold standard for determining their effectiveness is double-blind, peer-reviewed research. Because especially when misused, there are both plants and conventional medicines that can do us a lot of harm. With this in mind, I think we could all do really well to remember that everything we put into our bodies could potentially impact our health, particularly when it comes to the things we regularly consume, which is why the food we eat every day can itself be thought of as medicine. And one way in which seaweed medicine is meeting conventional medicine is in cancer research. A 2021 lit review published in Applied Sciences looks at the recent studies around seaweed and cancer, and which specific compounds from seaweed hold promise. It states that among the natural products obtained from these seaweeds, several compounds with therapeutic potential are able to induce cancer cell death through various signaling pathways. So that's very exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing all the ways in which that develops. I'll link that article in the show notes in case you want to dive deeper on that one. I also just really love the idea of adding a little bit of wild into your diet. Like it doesn't take a whole lot. This is why I love seaweed as like a condiment that maybe Mm. lives as a sprinkle Mm. on your Mm -hmm. kitchen table that you sprinkle a little bit on what you're eating. So I really want to discourage people from looking at a Thai pool as like their full on grocery store. 
you know, if everyone was doing that, imagine the impact that we would have. But it's really just giving a little haircut here or there to some of the species that are growing and doing your own little experimenting with them to add some of those flavors into your diet and some of those nutrients into your diet as well. Right. And there's all the kind of ethical harvest things, right? You're not like tearing it off of the rock. You're just trimming it, like you mentioned, and you're only taking the amount you need for it to be that condiment or the occasional salad or that kind of thing. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's really having an awareness of like the anatomy of this being too, Mm. so that you're not harvesting the reproductive structures. Mm. You know, you want them to be able to keep going. Like you said, leaving the hold fast attached to the rock so these things can keep growing. Now, this is where sort of like the farming of kelp comes into play because people are really looking at seaweed as one of the potential answers here to how we're going to feed our planet, how we're going to get protein into bodies, into our meat machines without (laughs) relying on cattle because these are such protein rich organisms right here. Right. So the farming is one potential answer and they're carbon sinks. They're cleaning the water. They're doing all these different amazing ecological services for us. And I have a a listener, Eric, was actually wondering about carbon sequestration. And you just mentioned that, like, have you heard anything about like blue carbon projects? Or do you know anything about like their power for sequestering carbon? And any ideas about where that might go? Or if that might become more of a thing? You know, I don't know too much about that, honestly. Mm -hmm. I just know that they're doing it. (laughs) I didn't know about blue carbon at all until Eric sent me this question on Patreon. But my good friend Noah, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has a wonderfully informative page titled Understanding Blue Carbon, and it is so fascinating. Honestly, this topic could be an entire episode, but I'm going to practice some self-control and just read you a small section of this page. It says, blue carbon refers to carbon dioxide that is absorbed from the atmosphere and stored in the ocean. The vast majority of blue carbon is carbon dioxide that has been dissolved directly into the ocean. Much smaller amounts are stored in underwater sediments, coastal vegetation and soils, carbon-containing molecules such as DNA and proteins, and ocean life from whales to phytoplankton. And this has all gotten a lot of attention, particularly carbon stored by saltwater ecosystems in their vegetation and soils. In terms of total areas, these ecosystems, salt marshes, mangroves, seagrass meadows, have a small global footprint, but their deep waterlogged soils can bury many times more carbon per acre than even a tropical rainforest. It goes on to say that coastal ecosystems' carbon storing power is a double-edged sword, because when they're disturbed or drained, they can release surprisingly large amounts of carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. But protected or restored, they can become an important tool for offsetting carbon dioxide emissions, especially for island nations and developing countries whose greenhouse gas emissions are relatively low. And because these ecosystems have multiple other benefits, from wildlife habitat to hurricane protection, strategies for protecting and restoring coastal blue carbon ecosystems are likely to play a growing role in U.S. and international climate policy in the coming years. So cool. So I'm kind of curious about their role in the intertidal ecosystem. So you mentioned that like a lot of critters kind of hang around on the seaweed. Kind of what place in the ecosystem do they serve? Oh yeah, they're a fabulous food source. We looked at the wandering meatloaf, the gumboot (laughs) chitin out there who is eating seaweed. Yeah. So that's great. Really quick, the gumboot chitin is a kind of marine mollusk that's sometimes called a wandering meatloaf because it looks like a wandering meatloaf. The, the abalone 
rely on kelp. This is part of the reason why the abalone fisheries has, and populate besides just fisheries, the population has done such a nosedive mm. is because the purple urchins are eating these large kelps that are growing in the deeper intertidal, which is in effect starving out the abalone. Purple sea urchins like to eat kelp, like a lot of kelp. Since the urchins are a native species in California, this has always been fine, since the urchins' natural predators, such as sea stars, have always kept their numbers in check. But then, sea stars started getting sick and dying of sea star wasting syndrome, and the purple sea urchin population exploded and devoured 95% of our coastal kelp forests between 2014 and 2019. The wastelands they leave behind are known as urchin barrens. The good news is that there are current active efforts to restore kelp ecosystems, but they're going to take a lot of management for a long time. National Geographic suggests eating uni, which is sea urchin, as one solution, but supporting climate solutions and restoration efforts are also great ways to help. Starting to make a comeback. So we're, we've been hey. on this long cycle okay. there. I'm starting to make a comeback. But we have like a lot of substrate that is created by, you can picture this scene here in the later spring or the summer, where every, you can't really see any clear rock surface. It's all covered by marine algae growing. And so in there, there's habitat for snails and invertebrates of all types. And another key part is like, it's providing architecture mm -hmm. in the intertidal. So this then becomes like a nursery for little fish. Mm -hmm. Things are laying their eggs in it. It's habitat, it's creating habitat, food and habitat. It's a twofer, twofer right. one. Can you kind of think of it the way that you think of plants on land? Just sort of that, like, the building blocks for the rest of the ecosystem to be able to make its way and exist? Yeah, you can with, like, a lot of epiphytes. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you think about, like, one of these, like, beautiful Sitka spruce trees that we're looking at here, mm -hmm. and yet there's all this lichen growing on it and fern mats in its upper branches, and that's sort of how the how the seaweed is growing. There's just like things growing on top of things growing on top of things. And some species only exist on top of other species. Like we know we saw a little bit of the the nori out there, the pyropia, the mm -hmm. maybill, the lava. There are 20 so different species of that that grow out here on the north coast of California. There's one species that only grows on those super long stipes of the bull kelp. Wow. So some of them are super specialized <laughs> in that way. Only on another seaweed. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. incredible. I know. I How know. many total species are there in California? Do you know? About 800. 800? Yeah. Okay, that that shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> That's way more than I thought you were going to say. I know. That's well, amazing. And you know, we're talking about macroalgae. We mm -hmm. haven't even looked at microalgae. Right. <laughs> which... Estimates are that there are up to 500,000 different species of microalgae in our oceans. Wow. Only about 50,000 have been described by science. So there's a lot of wondering to go on there. Sure. I love that about seaweed and just algae in general is that there's a lot of wondering that goes on. And let's take a deep breath together. We can thank the microalgae for that oxygen. You know, it's like mm. we teach our children oxygen comes from trees. Yes, partially, mm -hmm. but we have a lot of the oxygen that's coming from the microalgae of our oceans mm. that we are enjoying every day. Ocean doesn't get enough credit. It's out of sight, out of mind, I think, for a lot of us. Very true. When you first started eating seaweed, did you like it right away? <laughs> did you? 
<laughs> or did you have to acquire a taste for it? Oh my gosh, I love that question. I'm trying to think of my first experience. Okay, so usually like the beginner seaweed is nori. Okay. Now, yeah. that's the one that most people have had exposure to because they've had sushi and it came in some sort of nori wrapper or like what kid has not had the nori snacks that come right. in that little plastic tray in the plastic wrapper that are like super salty and sweet and oily. So, yeah, so that was really my first experience was harvest in terms of like what I harvested myself or learned about in that way was working with the nori. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get a chance to try any today, fresh from the ocean, but you put it in your mouth and it is like chewier than gum. You just oh. can chew and chew and chew and chew. What we sampled today, everything was like, it broke down pretty quickly yeah. in your mouth. Whether it turned to slime or it stayed yeah. sort of crunchy, <laughs> it broke down pretty easy in your mouth. Not to the nori when it yeah. is fresh, but once you roast it or fry it, it becomes super crispy oh, and yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so that's really how it was tradition has been traditionally eaten in this section of the California coast is that it was fried in some sort of fat. Whatever you had on hand, salmon, bear, Ooh, what have yeah. you, you were frying it in fat. And I mean, now you would just like put some coconut oil in a, a hot skillet and put your nori in there, flip it around for like two minutes. And you've got like this amazing emerald crispy Ooh. seaweed chip that emerges. And that's when it's still, do you dry it first or is that like still wet from the ocean? I would dry it first. It's, you know, we didn't really get to feel it, but it's very thin, only mm-hmm. one or two cell layers thick. Wow. And we would have stretched it almost like we were stretching like a, a latex glove. Wow. Super stretchy. And so it dries very quickly in the sun. It grows highest up in the intertidal zone and is really used to that type of desiccation. That's what it's evolved to do. So it dries very quickly, like 20 minutes in the sun and bam, it's dry. So once you have it, you don't necessarily need to fry it. You could also just roast it in the oven to really dehydrate it. You know, five minutes at like 300 degrees and now you have crispy nori. Mm -hmm. Once it's at that stage, you can... Put it in your food processor, in your blender, and then with like a 30 second waz, you can break it down into like little tiny flakes. Yeah. At that point, you can put it in just about anything and it, all it does is enhance the flavor and nutritional value and no one even realizes they're eating seaweed. Wow. So yeah. this is a classic thing that I started making early on was seaweed candy. Ooh. Which was basically, I went to like the co-op health food store or whatever. And I was looking at like what goes in bars, mm, you know, like all those sure, packaged yeah. bars, like I want to make some sort of bar. And so I like ground up some nuts and some seeds and added my flaked roasted nori mm-hmm. mixed in some sort of, you need some sort of sticky stuff. that's going to like hold it all together, sure. whether it's like a nut buttery thing or a, a honey, or I found actually brown rice syrup is like Ooh. the stickiest substance known to humankind okay. possibly. So I added some of that and pressed it out into a bars and added some chocolate, you know, melted chocolate on top, okay. a little sprinkle of like candied ginger. You get the vibe. I'm here for this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chop it up into some squares and you have, voila, your seaweed candy, which is like this salty, sweet, amazing thing. And so for a little while when I was in my 20s, I had a a little business going of selling seaweed. And so I would, you know, set up shop at the various (laughs) fairs and farmer's markets and things like that. And people would be like, 
the world has come a long way, like yeah. I said, the past 25 years. <laughs> but people would mostly turn their noses up like, oh, I'm not trying that. And then I would hand them a little sample of seaweed candy. And it really hooks people in. Nice. Yeah. Gateway drug. Completely. That's amazing. So once you've done that, you can like skip right over to the other things you're familiar with, like miso soup. Right. Which is then the wakame, so who yeah. we didn't get to meet out here, but grows right beyond those rocks okay. there. Alaria marginata which is beautiful. People feel pretty comfortable about that. And then, you know, I teach in my classes that seaweed is just another vegetable. Mm. So whatever you're making, it's not requiring special equipment or processing or ingredients. You can just, you're making your sauteed veggies to go with your whatever. You reach for your carrot, your cauliflower, your zucchini, your wakame, your kombu, your Mm. nori. Just throw it in the mix. Throw it in the mix, exactly. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you've got your super high protein, super high mineral vegetable mixed in with all your regular grocery store vegetables. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, Brandy, a listener, was also wondering about red tide. Oh, yeah. Is there ever an issue with safety with red tides? Yes, there is. And, you know, if it has been, if you're going down to a beach and you're seeing a sign posted that you know, red tide present, you see it in relation to harvesting shellfish. They're saying, Mm -hmm. don't harvest shellfish here. And so red tides have to do with microscopic marine algae that are having a bloom. Mm -hmm. So their population is just like exploding. And so they are releasing some potentially toxic compounds into the water that then could be concentrated in different organisms that filter those out, like shellfish or seaweed. Mm -hmm. So I would make sure to not harvest if you're seeing that there are red tide postings or alerts in your particular area. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. That's easy to avoid. Tori wants to know if you can recommend a book. You gave me a very cool laminated card to identify. Can you recommend a book for seaweed ID? Yes. Okay. So my favorite book is called just plainly sea vegetables. Okay. It's came out in the mid eighties. <laughs> Unfortunately not in print anymore, mm. but I'm sure that you could find used copies at some place. This book is by Evelyn McConaughey. And what I love about this is that it is a identification guide. You know, it's like a mini field guide along with a cookbook. Amazing. It's such a beautiful combination yeah. and you have to take it from the era that it is. It's very much like one jello packet plus one (laughs) Lipton soup packet. And you know, you add these things, but I love the spirit of it, which is seaweed are really versatile, just vegetables that you Mm. could incorporate into whatever your diet is. Okay. Is there going to be a forthcoming backcountry press? Like seaweed, (laughs) sea vegetables book? Uh, That is the dream for sure. That is a dream. Have I mentioned that you should check out backcountrypress.com slash seaweed? You can get the intertidal seaweed map totally for free. And you can also get a sea vegetable ID card for less money than I spend on a loaf of bread. The page also has Allison's digital courses on sea vegetables of the Pacific coast and cooking with sea vegetables. So you're all set. If you really need a book, Allison also recommends both seaweeds of the Pacific coast and Pacific seaweeds. But again, backcountrypress.com seaweed. I would also say that visiting iNaturalist is an oh, awesome yeah. resource for not only helping you identify what you have found, but to almost like look in advance of a place that you're thinking about visiting to see what other people have found there. That's great. Are there any myths, any common myths that you have heard about seaweed that you're like, no, that's not true. 
Let's dispel that. I mean, the first one is just that like seaweed is a plant and maybe I'm just like such a super nerd about this, but that one I'm like, actually it's not a plant, but we have seaweeds to think for all of our plants. So, you know, we talked about the greens, the reds and the browns. The greens are the chlorophyta and these are the ones that like invented the chloroplast. Oh gee. I know. It's amazing. I know. And these are the, the ancestors of all of our plants, the ancestors of the plant kingdom. So, you know, like seaweeds are not even in the plant kingdom. They're, they're oddballs. They're in their own kingdom of that is really just kind of hodgepodge miscellaneous, like weren't quite sure where to fit these things in. So they just kind of lumped them together and called them. Sometimes they're called protista. And I think maybe a more modern term is chromista. Okay. Yeah, ancient. We didn't know what to do with you. So why don't you stand together over here? (laughs) (laughs) And I would say like I don't know if it's a myth or just like a misconception that seems to be more of like a Western misconception is that like the first impulse about seaweed is that it's a nuisance, gross, smelly, associated with like unpleasant low tide smell. Mm. And when you look out here, it can just sort of look like this maroon colored blur. Right. And so I just love helping people to zoom in on that blur and bring it into better focus to see like there's amazing diversity here. 800 different types growing along our coast here. And what I love about specifically where we are right here on the north coast of California is that we are at the meeting ground for diversity where Mm. things that grow extensively to the north of us are finding their southern range extension here. Things that grow extensively to the south are finding their northern range extension here and that those are overlapping. So we're in like the hot spot. That's beautiful. I know. I know. And and it's really mirroring what's happening on the land. You know, directly inland from here, we have the Klamath Mountains, which experience the same overlap of species. You know, things are finding their, their western range extension, their southern range extension, their northern range extension. Plus there's things that only live right there. Wow. So... Okay, so Allison's husband is Michael Kaufman, with whom she co-founded Backcountry Press. And Michael, in addition to being just a walking encyclopedia about conifers and manzanitas, also just edited and published a beautiful natural history of the Klamath Mountains. And I went with him and his co-editor, Justin Garwood, to the Klamath Mountains and interviewed him about what makes this mountain range so special. And that episode is coming out next in two weeks. So stay tuned for that. It'll be my first ever set of back-to-back husband-wife episodes because these two are like a pinecone power couple or some kind of algal symbiosis. That needs workshopping. Anyway, listen to the next episode. The interview was so good and you're going to love it. Okay, here's the last question for you. You've been doing this for like 20 years coming out here. What about seaweed, sea vegetables? What about coming out into this intertidal zone still takes your breath away? I'm so glad I got to bring you here because this is really my happy spot. And if you squint your eyes a little bit, do you actually see anything that is like modern human made? No. No. And I mean, you can just feel like you're being transported back in time and imagine that the footsteps that we made in the sand right here are actually from people who would have been coming to these same tide pools and harvesting these same species to feed their families. I just, I really feel the energy of all the people that have walked the same path before 
we have and I pay them so much respect and and these are cultures that are still thriving here on the north coast of California and you know throughout California our indigenous cultures we have much to learn from their ways and their history so I love that part about it and then the other part is nothing gets me out of bed earlier than like having <laughs> to having to like meet a, an airplane you know right. it's always like yep. oh god I yep. gotta set the alarm for 4 30 for this one or trying to meet a really good low tide mm. and I am never ever disappointed when I make the effort to come out even if it's you know, really pushing it in terms of your creature comforts to get out of bed on that in the dark of dark of morning to make it here for a great low tide. It absolutely takes your breath away every time. This place is phenomenally beautiful, and you always see something new. Allison, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming out here and showing me such a gorgeous spot. I'm so glad you were into it. This is a great excuse oh, to come out. So into it. So check a tide table, head to the ocean for a good low tide, stand in awe of the complex system before you, and add some wild food to your life. I want to give a big thank you to Allison for taking an afternoon to come out on this interview with me, for feeding me seaweed delicacies right out of the ocean, and for lending me galoshes so that I could focus on our conversation and not on my frozen feet. Don't forget to head to backcountrypress.com seaweed and find all the wonderful resources Allison has brought together there. And as a thank you for sticking around to the end of the episode, I always say something interesting or funny or embarrassing from my week. And this week, it's that one of our good friends just turned 40, and he celebrated with an 80s-themed birthday party. And what you need to understand is that the last time our friend had a costume party, my husband and I severely underdelivered. Like, I think we failed to dress up at all, which is embarrassing. So I knew we had to do it right this time to avoid bringing permanent shame to our family. So we got an old milk crate, used a circular saw to cut the bottom out of it, and zip-tied a pair of handlebars we borrowed from our kid's bike to the back of it. My husband put on a red hoodie and pulled the hood up, and I shimmied inside the milk crate and pulled on a finger flashlight, a sheet, and an E.T. mask. Stan even played the E.T. theme song at full volume on his phone as we made our entrance, and I think maybe a lot of people didn't quite know what to do with us, but the birthday boy was thrilled. And I feel like we redeemed ourselves from our poor showing last time. Okay, that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here and for listening all the way to the end. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.